2: Recording from my living room in beautiful Marietta, Georgia, you are listening to the Think Inclusive Podcast, Episode 7. I'm your host, Tim Viegas. Today I will be speaking with Dan Habib about his new film, Who Cares About Kelsey? The film will be broadcast on public television beginning the weekend of September 28, 2013. In addition to the film, there are 11 mini-films available to watch on the website, whocaresaboutkelsey.com that support the message of inclusion and positive behavior support. Dan and I talk about positive behavioral interventions and supports, the importance of leadership in systems change, and the all-important question, who we think is going to win the World Series. So, without further ado, let's get to the podcast. Thanks for listening. Joining us today on the Think Inclusive podcast is Dan Habib. Uh, Dan is a former photojournalist turned filmmaker whose award-winning documentary about his son, including Samuel, captured the hearts of the disability rights community, including my own. His most recent film, Who Cares About Kelsey?, follows high schooler Kelsey Carroll in her senior year as she attempts to graduate, at the same time coming to grips with her history of abuse, neglect, failing grades, and ADHD. The film challenges us to reframe our concept of the problem student, and gives us an approach that is much more empowering and proactive. Dan, thank you for taking some time out of your day to speak with me.
3: Oh, it's a pleasure, Tim. Thanks for having me. Uh,
2: Great. Um, I know that for many of the people who listen to this podcast, um, you really Dan Habib does not need an introduction, but. A lot of us know you from your work in including Samuel, um, and that just chronicling um, what full inclusion looks like for your son. Um, What kind of connections do you think can be made from your first documentary, including Samuel, to what your most recent who cares about Kelsey Uh, do you see that there are similar themes about inclusion about never giving up on a student and were those uh, intentional at all
3: yeah thanks for the question I think there were a lot of connections and and really doing including Samuel and traveling around the country with it led to this film and I never would have done this film if I hadn't had the experience as you probably know including Samuel is um, books as largely on Samuel as you mentioned and Samuel has a pretty amazing kid. Of course, I'm biased, but he's got a huge sports fan. We live in New England, so he's big into the Red Sox uh, and the Patriots and NASCAR. He, he loves science. He loves social studies. He's in eighth grade now. He's doing really well. He's been on the honor roll. He's also a kid who has terrible quality, and uh, he uses a communication device for most of his communication. has a feeding tube, you know, to describe him in different ways. He uses a wheelchair for mobility. Um, And I was fortunate in that that when I did the film, including Sandville, I had really no idea where it was going to go. I just felt like it was a film I had to do. Mm -hmm. But it led me around the country. And I've shown it, I think, more than 400 times at this point in more than 40 states and, and multiple countries. And the thing that was interesting is almost everywhere I went, people would ask lots of questions. And one of the questions that came up again and again was, do you think it might be harder to include kids with more hidden disabilities hmm. than a really obvious disability like Samuel's? And so I started thinking about that and doing some research, and, and the first question was, well, what's a hidden disability? So I think that's important for us to just touch on because a hidden disability is a huge swath of, of kind of labels or categories, whatever you want to call them. It could include mental health issues like schizophrenia or bipolar. It could be post-traumatic stress. It could be anxiety, depression, fetal alcohol syndrome, You know, you name it. Um, it could be caused by genetics, it could be caused by environmental factors like poverty or abuse, it could be caused, you know, by neurological issues. And so what, what I found in talking with people is that a lot of educators were actually having a more difficult time including and supporting kids with these hidden disabilities. And in fact, the, the outcomes for kids with these kinds of disabilities is, is awful. I mean, you have about a over 50% dropout rate. Mm-hmm. You've got about 55% of these kids are not included in general education classrooms. So the, the vast majority are not included. They are twice as likely as a kid with any other kind of disability to be incarcerated, addicted to drugs, a teen parent, or living on the street after graduating. So all those, all those factors and conversations and statistical research led me to want to do a project that could be a catalyst for change for kids with hidden disabilities, just like including has been well, for kids primarily, I think, with physical disabilities.
2: So how did you find out about uh, Summersworth High School? Is that because of the proximity of where you live?
3: That's part of it. Um, you have know, The film, Who Cares About Kelsey? It's filmed at Summersworth High School. And what happened was, I started asking around a lot of people in the field. I thought you had Paula Cluth on one of your shows. She's a friend and, a, and an advisor, and I was visiting at Syracuse and lots mm-hmm. of people, and I said, "You know, what is it? What cut kind of model should I be showing just to demonstrate what it takes to support and include these kids successfully, You have these disabilities, and certain words are coming up, coming up again and again: positive behavioral supports, mm-hmm. um, you know, universal design for learning, differentiated instruction. You know, we could talk more about these if you want during the podcast, but." there are certain educational practices that are so widely respected and, and as evidence-based practices that help all kids learn. But unfortunately, they're not being implemented in that many schools.
2: Right, and exactly.
3: what I found was that, luckily, in my own state, some of my colleagues at the Institute on Disability at UNH, where I was a filmmaker, had been doing work in this high school. And it's a pretty low-income community. They don't have a lot of resources, but they are committed to finding a way to get every kid to graduate. And they have one of the highest dropout rates in the state. And then they said, you know, really they brought in positive behavioral supports, or CBIS, positive behavioral intervention supports, also called as a dropout prevention uh, mechanism. You know, they, they had an expert in who said, you know what, if you do this and do it well, you will dramatically reduce your dropout rate. So that got everybody on board because they had a lot of pressure from the state to reduce mm-hmm. the dropout rate. So they did that, and while at the same time they implemented a specific program or an approach called Renew, which is which is part of the film, mm. which is a person-centered planning approach for kids who are at very risk of dropping out. So it's a way for kids to the insurmountable odds to graduating, to find a way to build a team around them, advisors and supporters, and to break down those paths that seem so huge into more manageable, attainable steps for graduation. So over four years, they reduced the dropout rate by 75 percent. And they reduced their disciplinary problems by 55 percent, and Kelsey turns out was in the middle of that transformation.
2: Um, I'm hearing a lot of different kind of buzzwords. For those who are very familiar sure. with inclusion, you know, I'm hearing positive behavior intervention and supports. I'm hearing universal design for learning. I, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm hearing person-centered planning. Those are all things that, um, that as a believer in inclusion, you know, for all kids. Uh, are really really important. How did this particular high school um, get all of that support all at once? Uh, and you know, like you said, Kelsey was a lucky recipient of being that in that environment, and then also you being involved with this film, you know, highlighting the changes, you know, that affected her and the school. And um, so, how? I mean, how does right. how does that happen exactly?
3: Sure. Well, it can happen in a lot of different ways depending on the school. One thing I will say is, as I've talked to a lot of people around the country, money is not the biggest factor here in any mm. school's transformation and inclusion. I mean, yes, education needs money. You know, there's no doubt about it. Right. You, know, you want to be able to have a good staffing ratio. You want to be have properly trained staff. You want to have good technology, of course. And that's just about good education. What I think i found makes the biggest difference is great leadership. And Summersworth has that, in a great principal, Sharon Lampert, I, I think it's very difficult to have this type of positive transformation and progress without strong leaders. Uh, and you also need an attitude within a school that we are just, we're about supporting every kid and not giving up on any kid. And we are going to presume that every kid is confident. We're going to make sure we, everyone in the building knows that every kid can be successful. And, and all of us understand that. Listen, a lot of us struggled when we were younger, whether we have a disability or not. There were periods in our life where we struggled, and you know you got to get kids through those bumps. So, specifically in Somersworth, they did have there wasn't a, a New Hampshire Department of Education grant that incentivized uh, positive behavioral supports because you know that's an approach that is seen as a practice that's effective across the country. And maybe we can talk just about what what it is very in a minute, but. Once that was incentivized, they were able to get some training for their staff. Uh, and, and that was certainly helpful. I mean, the fact that there was somebody to help facilitate the process from the UNH and the Institute on Disability was extremely helpful. Um, but I'd say really it, it has it, the, the capacity has to be built internally. And ultimately that's what happened at some of schools they weren't relying on outside consultants for years. They were they, they took this on themselves and they learned that really what it's about when you look at positive behavioral supports or PBIS is looking at the school and saying, listen, 80% of the students here are going to be successful if we have a really positive, healthy school climate and culture and good instruction, right? About 80% are going to be successful. Now that's easier said than done. So a lot of the focus of their implementation of PBIS was about working on that school culture and making it a place that kids felt safe, that staff felt safe. They felt like a strong sense of community. There was a feeling of respect. There's consistency around discipline and language around discipline, you know, all those important things. Mm-hmm. Then, there are, then there are maybe 10 or 15% of kids who need something more. You know, they need extra instructional support. So they might need to check in with someone in the morning and check in with someone at the end of the day, you know, just check in, check out. Um, that's what, you know, in PBIF language is called kind of that, that yellow tier of support, um, at kids who might need something extra. And then there are the Kelseys of the world
2: <laughs> right. who
3: have everything going against them and they're going to need intensive support where they will either drop out or school, in many cases, are going to farm them out to, you know, a quote-unquote special school for figure behavior problems, which is often, you know, a sinkhole for these kids. Uh, yeah. just around lots of kids with really challenging behavior and that's just not a really good roadmap. So, you know, Kelsey was a kid that has severe ADHD. She also deals with depression and anxiety. She was very public about the fact in the film that she was sexually abused as a kid. She was self-mutilating, you know, for eighth grade, ninth grade. Her mother was very heavy into drugs. Her dad's kind of emotionally disconnected. All of her siblings pretty much, um, you know, many of them had teen pregnancies or uh, didn't make it through school. So she had, there was a lot going on in her life that was putting her on a direction towards dropping out, probably incarceration, probably drug abuse and pregnancy. And the film is really about how the school worked with her to change her trajectory to the point now where she's taking college classes, uh, trained to be a firefighter, and traveling around the country with me on this film tour, um, you know, hopefully helping people's minds (laughs) up.
2: Yeah, it's great to see the transformation that Kelsey, go- Kelsey goes through, uh, mm-hmm. you know, at, at the end of the film, you know. Um, yeah. I, I don't want to give away too much, you know. but you <laughs> <Yeah>. know. <laughs> It's okay. Now, yeah. People,
3: people hopefully will catch it on public television. They can see
2: it there. That's right. And, uh, well, since you brought that up, um, September sure. 28th, it's going to be on public television, but not, not everywhere. It's only going to be at certain cities. Is that correct?
3: Yeah. The best way to know if it's going to be in your listener's area, to so go to our website, whocaresaboutkelsey.com, there's a big red public broadcast label right on the front, and just click on that, and it lists where all the um, broadcasts are happening and when all around the country on public television, and then Kelsey and I are also doing a lot of um, screening events this year, so we have a whole upcoming screening pad as well, so we're, both, we're traveling, and it's also going to be on uh, public television this fall.
2: Excellent. Are you? uh, I mean, since I'm based here in Georgia, I didn't see any Georgia dates. Have you been to Georgia? Are you planning on coming to Georgia at all?
3: Um, I was in Georgia for the Positive Behavioral Supports Conference about a year ago. Uh Um, So the next time I'd be there, I might be there. My son Samuel wants to go see the race, the NASCAR races in Talladega, so we may just be going on a pleasure trip, staying in Atlanta. But, um, But so. What happens is we tend to get indications from all around the country, and then when uh-huh. we get those, we, we try and go to those places. But, um, yeah, so unfortunately I won't be able to in your backyard anytime real soon as far as I know no.
2: <laughs> Well, no pressure or anything. <laughs>
3: yeah, <laughs> I would do. I'd like to. I'd like to see you in person.
2: Um, let's talk about um, this idea of, of good kids and bad kids um, mm-hmm. because I, I think that that's um, – what many students who are in the same situation as Kelsey kind of get labeled as, you know, well, they're just a, they're just a bad kid. Um, and unfortunately it's something I've heard before. It's something other educators and other parents have heard before that, um, these are just bad kids. And if I was, you know, if they were my kid, you know, Mm -hmm. I would, you know, you know, and give a list of reasons uh, why they wouldn't be acting that way. Um, is there such thing as a bad kid or a good kid? And do we ever get into the situation of, well, you know, we just can't save everybody.
3: Sure. First of all, I, I almost named this film, no bad kids. So that's and, and meaning there are no bad kids. So mm-hmm. that kind of gives away my hand. I don't think there are bad kids. I mean, I think there are kids who have bad behavior, challenging behavior, problematic behavior, dangerous behavior, even, but I think that behavior it happens for a reason, and I think behavior is often a form of communication mm. uh, when kids are, are acting out or being, whether they're a year old or two years old or 18, there's a reason to that. So a lot of kids, let's say in middle school or high school, they may find that by acting out, they're getting something that they need. It might be attention because they're not getting enough attention either at school or at home. They might get tossed out of the classroom where they're not feeling successful because they're struggling in school, and so it's a lot better just to get tossed out of the classroom. They might, if they're lucky, maybe even get suspended. And then I talked to kids. I, I did interview this part of this project um, for, for some mini-films that we can talk about that I did. I interviewed incarcerated youth, and they, they talk about how when they were teenagers, they love getting suspended. So they would be on their own. They'd hook up with some friends. They'd drink. They'd smoke. They'd have sex. You know, <laughs> it was a great day. Um, and, and it just shows you the failure of these punitive approaches because what you find is that when you figure out what is at the root of the kid's behavior, um, you know, some kids really do need to be taught to you know, and those are kids who are not necessarily you know, sociopaths or anything, but, I mean, kids who just, for whatever reason, they just don't necessarily know certain appropriate behavior. Behavior needs to be taught just like English and math and social studies.
2: Um, your, the, the film, uh, Who Cares About Kelsey?, and then also the mini films, um, which are fabulous, by the way. Oh, thank um, you. Um, They mostly talk about older kids, and I know that you have the the one – a mini film um, about—I'm uh, not going to say her name right. Uh, is it Tasha? Tasha. Tasha? Yeah. yeah, that's great. Tasha. Oh, yes, um, uh, is a, a little um, a little autistic girl who um, mm-hmm. has um, just, uh, the support that she has in her elementary school. Um, can you talk a little bit about what elementary and middle schools can do? Um, as in regards to PBIS and uh, how to support, you know, kids that have some challenging behavior.
3: Yeah, of course. You know, actually, nationally, more elementary and middle schools practice positive behavioral supports PBIS than high schools. So, in the case of Kelsey and so much with high, that's more the uh, exception than the rule. Mm-hmm. And of course, at the even at the preschool level, uh, more program. is called program-wide positive behavioral supports. And there's a stat that is really stunning. That is, if you can imagine, what do you think is is the grade level at which more kids are expelled than any other level? I wouldn't know. Preschool. Really. Preschool. More kids are expelled in preschool than any other level in school, uh, which is stunning. That is about. stunning. Mm-hmm. But part and partly because um, you know they can because most preschools are private, but partly because behavior is just so misunderstood at every age, and particularly mm. at that age. So you know, I think at the elementary and middle school level, many of the practices that I tried to show in the film and the mini-films that you mentioned, which people, by the way, can watch on our website for free, if you go to our WhoCaresAboutKelty.com, there's a whole multimedia section that you probably found that has all these films. The Kelsey story was, was dramatic, and it covered a lot of ground, but I wanted to cover even more ground, and I wanted to show things like A Kid Like Marcel... Actually, Marcel is a film that's just on the education kit that we sell, but I'll just tell you briefly, that one looks largely at racial disparities in discipline. There's a tremendous racial disparity as well. African-American boys are disciplined and punished at a much higher rate than white kids. Um, So you see that in his story. You also see a kid who escalates very quickly and intensely to violence and how the school handles that in a really amazing way by saying, you know, what is is at the root of this behavior? And there's something called a functional behavioral assessment that's done, particularly when kids are younger, but it you be done anytime. time, well, where you have a kid with really challenging behavior, like a Marcel or a Taja, and you say, well, let's track when this behavior occurs. Let's, let's really track it for a couple of weeks and do some research and say, let's look for everything that happens before the behavior occurs and, and, and really look and see if there's something that's triggering that challenging behavior and is there a way to eliminate that trigger. So for a kid like Taja, who's the bill of oxygen that you mentioned, where they, she goes to school that has positive behavioral supports, has incredible staff. Um, they use augmented communication devices for kids like Taja. She has access to one. But basically, they found that one of her triggers was the word no, that they realized that after tracking this for a while, that every time someone said no, she would have a failure. Now, you might say, well, you got to say no, right? <laughs> but there are other ways to say no. I mean, they're saying, they're, you know, there's ways to redirect a kid like Taja and say, Taja, this isn't the best time for that right now. How about we do this instead? Now, you didn't say no, and that, and she actually responded very well to that. So the other thing that I tried to look at was, it, are there critical times in kids' lives where things go awry? And what I found in interviewing the six incarcerated youth that I made short films about is that often it was middle school, and often it was because they weren't necessarily the troublemakers, but they were kids like Tariq, who was coming to, drunk, coming to school drunk every day in seventh grade, and nobody noticed. So he'd be in the back of the room sleeping. He wasn't making trouble, but the only time he got in trouble was when he was drunk and he got caught by the cops. And then they, he'd get arrested. He got arrested ten times in middle school. So here's a kid that obviously needed some help, obviously needed some more proactive intervention, and he wasn't getting it. All he was getting was punished. So to me, those were incredibly insightful, these interviews, and these were just incredibly powerful and, and eloquent people to talk about what happened in life. Another one is Nicole, who I interviewed, and when she was 14, she got involved in a very emotionally abusive relationship with a boy, and I won't kind of tell it too much about the story. It's a very powerful story, and I'd like it to kind of unfold as people watch it, but she ended up doing something really, really horrible because this boy manipulated her. Um, and then one more I'll just mention, the story on Axel. It was truly a story on a kid who was underestimated for many years, a kid with autism, and then he, when he went to this new school, coincidentally also in Somersworth, they worked so hard to give him the communication tools he needed. And for many kids who don't have good access to communication tools, like a device or some type of system, the only way they can show what they want is by acting out or yelling or having some behavior. Mm-hmm, you know it's mm-hmm. a this desperate attempt to say, pay attention to me, I'm trying to tell you something. Um, so I'm a, and my own son, sandal has a communication device I'm a kind of huge believer in working extremely hard to get access that, to that. Um, I did a film on restraint and seclusion, which people can also watch on the site, that was funded through a big um, a grant from cash. And the, the stories there are so painful because kids who didn't have access to communication were really abused for years. Because A, they couldn't express what they really needed or wanted, and B, they couldn't really tell anybody that they were being, um, you know, restrained and secluded in they were abused at school. So it's, a, it's an awful story, but an important one, I think. Uh,
0: right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
2: Yeah, I mean, everything that you're bringing up is so important, uh, especially for educators to, to understand that um, there are so many things behind the way that uh, a student behaves, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, um uh, And also, um, something that we kind of assume when we talk about functional behavior assessments or, you know, analyzing behavior is that behavior is this negative thing. When it's it's really not only negative or only positive, it's really a mixture of things you know and just like you or i and and what we do and what we're uh motivated by it's uh it's never all you know one positive good thing or not all one positive negative thing it's it, everything overlaps you know um meanings overlap so it's a it's a much more complicated issue and especially when you have students who are nonverbal um right if you don't have a fun- if they don't have a functional communication system Mm-hmm. then you're going to see a lot of things that are going to be interpreted as negative. Um, right. and, and also um, I'm not sure if this ever comes up in, in the film or any of the mini films, but um, health is also a, a huge reason for someone to, mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote act out. You know, if That'd you have, point. if you have an ear infection, if you have, uh, you know, pain in your body, if you have headaches, if, and if you don't have a functional communication system, all that stuff is going to affect how you behave and um, and then you get labeled as a bad kid so uh,
3: exactly you know you're really hitting on some really important points and, and it reminds me of two two comments that I heard that really inspired me to do this project. One was I was up in Buffalo show including San Diego, Buffalo, New York, and a mom was saying she had a child with some emotional and behavioral disabilities and that child, if he didn't if he didn't have his shoes tied just a certain way in the morning, if he didn't have just the right pants on, just the right food, with just the right texture and just the right order, you know, I mean, he would blow up. He would just have a real meltdown. So she would work so hard every day to keep everything, you know, in order for him and, and meet his needs, and it would take so long. But she would get him out the door, and then some days he might still be out with her and have some challenging behavior, and she would get judged for being a bad mom. Mm-hmm. It's, not just, it's about the kids being judged, and it's also about the parents often being judged their kid's behavior went, and this mom was just crying and saying, You don't even know they don't even know what I do just to get my kid out the door every day. And in a similar vein I was speaking to a kid at a screening and he was telling me that that just to get through every day of school, people have no idea what it takes. You know, how much concentration, how much patience, how hard it is for him to do this because he, because just the simulation of school and, and those things kids are saying and you know, frankly, every time I go into my son's family's middle school, I'm just like, wow, this place is completely overwhelming. <laughs> I don't know how they do it every day. I don't know how the teachers do it. I don't know how the kids do it. It's just so intense. And, you know, and yet we expect our kids to not have, you know, to not ever get grumpy or angry or, or impulsive or respond. Where, you know, we as adults do that stuff all the time. And I think sometimes we keep—we give our kids less back than we give ourselves or our partners. You know?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, a couple more things before we, you know, wrap up our conversation. Um, the first thing is I'd like for you to, um, talk about, you know, what, positive behavior intervention supports really is and Mm -hmm. you know maybe give an example of what it's not because when usually when I talk to people you know about applied behavior analysis positive behavior support they have a preconceived idea of what that is um and and it's a very clinical usually it's a very clinical idea you know you know um subjecting our students uh, as lab rats and being very, right, you know, poking and prodding, see what kind of behaviors come out and, you know, stuff like yeah. that. Um, can you kind of speak to that a little bit?
3: Sure, I'd be happy to. Let me just say first, I'm a filmmaker, so often I like to communicate through film. And so I'm, I want to just point you to one more mini film on our website called Education Revolution at Summerwood High School. And that's a, a 13-minute film that shows how the school transformed through public behavioral supports. And it really puts a picture on Positive behavioral support and what it looks like and feels like in a school. So uh, in addition to what I'm about to tell you, I hope people can check that out on the website. Um, but basically, what first I'll start with what PBIS is not. And first of all, positive behavioral support is kind of the whole principle of this approach that we're going to we'll be talking about. Positive behavioral interventions and support is a kind of a very specific framework that is, devel- is developed and over decades at federal level and is now supported by a national technical assistance center, which is basically under the federal government, and people can look at it at PBIS, pbis.org. I really recommend people go to that site. It's incredible. And all the gurus who've really been working on this for decades are part of that organization. Um, but PBIS is not a packaged curriculum or something you download or buy or a specific intervention. It's, it's really a framework, a decision-making framework that guides a school in selecting and integrating and implementing best practices. So when we talk about universal design for learning, or differentiated instruction, or augmented communication, all these things fall under this can fall under the CBIS umbrella, and it's a framework for organizing it. And I and I have actually gotten to know it on a couple in a couple different ways because not only have I studied it through this film, I've actually been part of um, the middle school team where my son's family goes in implementing it for the last two years at their school. So what I, what I would say is important for people to know is that. It's almost at the polar opposite of the zero-tolerance, you out policies that are very reactive to behavior. Okay, So when you see challenging behavior, you react, you punish, you discipline, you, you, know, you put kids in detention, you throw them out of school. But unfortunately, those approaches have absolutely no evidence of working. <laughs> they don't change behavior. They don't get at the source of behavior. They don't teach behavior, and they actually don't create safe schools. There's no evidence to suggest that. Whereas PBIS has a, a tremendous amount of literature behind it that suggests that when you, when you basically think about positive approaches to dealing with behavior issues. So you incentivize good behavior as much as possible rather than just punishing bad behavior. It Doesn't mean that you let kids off the hook. There's still consequences, but those consequences are, are consistently uh, applied over the, over the whole school. So it's positive, it's behavioral, so it understands that behavior is a form of communication. It's interventions, and interventions mean you're delivering interventions for kids for whatever they need. So for a typical kid, they might just need a a good, strong, healthy school environment. That's the intervention and good instruction. But for Mm. a kid like Kelsey, they need renewal. They need a person-centered planning or wraparound more intensely. And then it's supports. So what does a kid like Kelsey need to be successful? What kind of supports does she need? And I, I tell you, I worry particularly around the Common Core, which I think is a really good idea. We need Common Core standards. I worry that we're raising the bar, which is good. You know, we're making sure that kids really develop these competencies. But I do worry that kids, that even more kids are going to fall through the cracks, like healthy. Because you may, if you're not delivering the kind of support they need to learn the common core, where are they going to be left? You know, what's going to happen to them? Yeah. So, so you know, I, I've just seen QBIS work as an organizing framework at a school level. You, you have the kind of discussions you have. You kind of have the strategy and strategic approaches you, you need In order to run a very complicated system, which is a school.
2: Mm -hmm. That's a good point about the about the Common Core, Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, it's something that um, uh, that a lot of educators are just having a hard time putting, you know, wrapping their mind around. um, Right. You know what exactly that is, Uh, and uh, I I think um, what I'd like to know, uh, I'd like to know what you think about um, how PBS can be implemented, you know, nationwide, because Mm -hmm. there are, you know, you've talked about this before, not on this podcast, but in lots of other places, how uh, inclusion, uh, PBS really is only practiced in pockets around the country. So uh, certain states will be doing well in a certain area but really only certain counties in that state and then other states will be doing something right. else a little bit different or better you know and then yeah um, so how do we get PBIS um, and universal design you know and differentiated instruction how do we get those things those major ideas into more schools
3: right that's a great question Well, there's there's, there's several thoughts that come to mind. One is that I think we need to educate our leaders at the state and federal level, and many at the federal level really already get this because I've had a chance to talk to a lot of them, but at the state level, you know, really demonstrate the evidence that these approaches improve student achievement because I think that so much of this comes down to student achievement, and and as it should. You know, you want kids to be successful. But, you know, so I think on one hand, you want to make sure they know that this will actually help kids learn. It will improve their academic achievement. It will improve their chances of graduating from school and going to college. And and there's evidence to suggest that. It also will address, it also tends to address a lot of disparities, whether it's economics or racial disparities, in terms of which kids are being served well and which kids are not being served well. I think that's important for them to to know as well. But I also think that there is this, you know, I I ask the question a lot when I go do public speaking, which I do a lot uh, around the country. And I ask the audience, when you think of who you are today as a person, and I don't mean like your job, necessarily, although that's a piece of it, but, you know, your, your relationships, your hobbies, your passions, everything, the whole picture. And then you look back to your education, especially K-12, what had a bigger influence on forming who you are today? Was it the academic experience at school or was it the social and emotional experience at school? And do you want to guess what the ratio typically is? Uh,
2: I'm sure it's more social-emotional.
3: Like ninety eight percent, yeah. Emotional. Yeah. And what's what's interesting about that is if you if you think if you ask the same question, say, well, how much of our time do we spend in schools focused on academics versus social emotional? It's going to probably be ninety eight percent academic. So I think part of this is also looking more holistically at our kids and who we want them to become as adults, and realizing that focusing on behavior is a really good and productive thing. It's a very healthy way to spend time. You know, supporting our kids and helping them be successful. And they need to learn social and emotional skills in order to navigate a lot, a lot of challenges in life, academic and otherwise. So that's one thing I think you know, that's just general awareness. There is there are some really exciting efforts to scale up some of these practices happening right now, and I'm actually fortunate to be involved in one of them. There was a major grant awarded called SWIFT. I don't know if you're familiar with this at all. Yes. Mm-hmm. Was, okay, so there was a, a, a request for a proposal that's from the federal government, like a $25 million grant to create a national technical assistance center basically for inclusive education. But it's even bigger than that. I mean, it's really about all these things we're talking about. How do we, how do we scale that up nationally? So, University of Kansas got the grant, but the Institute on Disability at UNH, where I work, is one of the kind of subcontractors. And I'm part of a five-year grant to do films around the country at six knowledge development sites, to call calling them. And they're really schools that are shown. They're among the most amazing, inclusive public schools in the country. So by by studying them, by showing them on film, by educating, and then by having these states that are called implementation states, um, they're trying to basically scale up these practices to a statewide level. And it's very, very exciting, and I think it holds, people are extremely jazzed about it, and they see it as, as the best hope we have right now to show that these approaches that we've been talking about for the last 45 minutes or so can be scaled up to a state and national level. So I'm hope I have huge hopes for it.
2: Yeah, I'm very hopeful too. Um, I'm hoping that at the end of, you know, the it, I, I'm not sure, is it a three- or five-year grant? I,
3: think it, I believe it's a five-year grant. Okay, so at the end of that
2: five years, we'll have some really concrete data, not only data but also, you know, um, Examples like with what you're doing with the filming, yeah, that we and can implementation too. I mean, exactly,
3: there be states that have really already had a lot of implementation as well.
2: Yeah, so so we can use that as a really a catalyst to change, you know, the um, what you know what kids need and how um, all learners can benefit
3: from that. Um, right. Exactly. I mean, listen, this is a democracy, and we can't tell everybody, and we shouldn't tell everybody what to do in every single community. You know, we we it's not a dictatorship. What we have to do is show what the, the research and the evidence says is working, you know, and really right. educate people and, and give. And I also do think that there's the a power in film and show. Some people are completely convinced by the data, but I think most people want to see it too. They want to see what it looks like, and that's why I, I feel so fortunate to do the work I do through film. Um, and I, I wanted to mention one other thing that we're doing right now, which is related to this, is I think that you know we name the film Who Cares About Kelsey because. On one hand, you could say, well, who the hell cares about Kelsey? You know, she comes from a rough family. She's probably going to drop out. You know, she's not really worth the effort. But so really, as you go through the film, you see just who cares about Kelsey. And you see her mentor, Kathy Franco, You see the principal. You see members of her family and their own complicated ways of caring about her. And then ultimately, she cares about herself. And that's what really makes the difference. But what we decided to do with this national launch is that we're also launching a campaign called I Care by like. What, are you, what are you doing in your everyday life to show that you care about kids who are struggling? And we offer very simple suggestions for people to, to take on a daily basis, whether you're an educator, a family member, or youth, to, to make a difference in the lives of kids. And we're giving them very concrete steps they can take. So we're actually going to be launching that um, end of September. So I'm not sure when this will be on the air, but we hopefully it will be launched by the time is broadcast at iCareby.org. I and again, it uses film as, as a way to teach some of these lessons.
2: Um, well, excellent, excellent. Thank you for uh, the conversation, and um, I have one more quick question for you. Sure. It's very important. Are the Red Sox going to win the World Series?
3: <laughs> I sure hope so. We just watched <laughs> the game tonight, and they beat the Orioles. So okay, depending on when this uh, actually airs, we're hoping that we'll be watching them in the American League Championship Series winning, and they're going to go up through. We are big, big fans in this family, and I – they, I remember the years ago when they played the Yankees and they came back from three games down. I just lost so much sleep <laughs> that week and I was so tired, but I loved every minute of it. How about you? are you rooting for? them?
2: Well, no, I'm a uh, I'm a Los Angeles Dodger fan, so oh, I. Well, we've never seen uh, you. In exactly. Series. Yeah, I still have the nineteen <laughs> the 1998 World Series Kirk Gibson home run ingrained in, in my nice. brain. So that right. that,
3: <laughs> that is very memorable. Well, we're gonna be rooting for. We, right now, we're looking for a Pirates Red Sox World Series. No offense, but we just think that I think that would be fun.
2: Well, that would be pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I <laughs> definitely have my bias, and uh, uh, since I am in the Atlanta area, I do have a special place in my heart for the Braves. But
3: yes, they're I, good
2: too. I grew up in Los Angeles, so that is my—that's my team. All
3: right. Well, we might be one of your teams uh, against the Red Sox. Okay. There. <laughs> well, okay. It was really good to talk with you. Thanks so much for having me
2: on. Absolutely. Thank you for your time. Sure. That concludes this edition of the Think Inclusive Podcast. For more information about Dan Habib and the film Who Cares About Kelsey, make sure to visit the website whocaresaboutkelsey.com You can watch the mini films, find statistics and articles about the issues brought up in the film, find out when the film will be broadcast in your area, links to purchase the film, or even win your very own screening of the film. You can also follow on Twitter at W.C.A. Kelsey. Remember, you can always find us on Twitter at think underscore inclusive or on the web at thinkinclusive.us. Today's show was produced by myself, talking into USB headphones, using a newly refurbished MacBook Pro, GarageBand, and a Skype account. Bumper music by Jose Galvez with the song Press. You can find it on iTunes. You can also subscribe to the Think Inclusive podcast via the iTunes Music Store or Podomatic, the largest community of independent podcasters on the planet. From Marietta, Georgia, please join us again on the Think Inclusive podcast. Thanks for your time and attention.
1: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.